back to Starve the Eagle, Feed the Soul. I am Nico Barraza. And I just got done with this beautiful shoot down in Sedona, Arizona this morning. It was amazing. Sunrise is beautiful as always. And it was a spectacular sky this morning. So we shot for a couple hours on this big project I'm working on down there. A super fun time, but was able to scoot back up here to the studio and record this intro for you guys before we launch this week's episode. And there's a few things that have been on my mind. So I'm currently moving or in the process of moving and moving out of my current place at the end of the month. And then my new lease doesn't start till middle of August. So thankfully I have a few friends with a garage that I'm going to store all my packed furniture, packed boxes there and stay with them for a couple weeks. Um, well, I wait for the new place to open up. I desperately needed a garage to store the motorcycles and the gear. And um, I love the place I'm at now, but uh, just sort of outgrew it a bit. And uh, I've accumulated a lot of stuff over the years since I stopped doing van life. So in this market, I'm really thankful and grateful that I was able to find a place with a garage, even though I'm definitely considering splitting time between where I currently live and uh, maybe elsewhere. I think it's, uh, you know, I would love to check out some more places. I've traveled a lot, but, you know, there's a couple places on my mind that I could possibly split time uh, and hopefully call myself a local in these spots as well. Um, but I have a couple of things on my mind. It's interesting, like um, my last move, when I moved into the current place I'm in, uh, it was super emotional for me because my partner had just left uh, a couple months before. And so packing all the stuff um, that we sort of bought together, kind of packing up the home we put we built together with our lives solo or alone uh, was a super emotional experience. It was, a, um, you know, just a really hard time for me. And I think uh, I kind of feel remnants of that energy as I start to pack up my current place. And uh, I, I just wanted to sort of state, because I know a lot of people like you read so much stuff on social media by self-help gurus or therapists or, you know, people with PhDs. And they're like, well, you have to do it this way. Or, you know, if you're holding on to this, like you're not doing this the right way or this and that. And I just want to state this clearly that everyone should experience their grief in its full capacity on their own timeline. So for me, you know, it comes in waves. Like I have weeks that I feel great. And then weeks that I that I miss this individual quite a, quite a lot, and she's continuously on my mind. And I don't think that's a bad thing, you know. I'm not holding on to past memories, but when you love someone so deeply, uh, it's okay to have that process, uh, you know, have that grief process expand and you know um, sort of fizzle out over time. It doesn't have to be within three months, six months, a year, or two years, especially depending on how long and how strong your relationship was. So, you know, for me, packing up this current place, it's definitely very emotional. You know, I was packing up a painting um, that she had painted for me for my birthday a couple of years ago. And every time I, I look at this painting, it, it's beautiful. It's one of my favorite things I own outside of, you know, having my two wonderful dogs, um, just because it embodies like the love and the energy that is around her spirit, you know, knowing that her, her hands and her heart and her, you know, talent had touched this canvas and it's a gift to me. And so it's this reminder of just, uh, you know, all the beauty that's within her and was within our relationship. And so when I see this painting, you know, especially when I'm packing it up, getting ready to move, uh, it, you know, it brings tears to my eyes and there's definitely tears of happiness. And I'm so happy and thankful for, you know, all the lessons I learned from her and the love I was able to share. And then still grief and sadness from, you know, the mistakes and the pain 
that was were caused on both sides and and owning my own uh, mistakes and actions. And there's so many instances in that relationship that I wish I had back. Right. Like I, I know, like looking back and sort of um, analyzing each individual, you know, argument or fight or discussion or whatever. And of course, I'm looking at the the uh, negative stuff or the troublesome stuff, the the easy stuff or the great stuff or the, uh, you know, happy times. Those are, the, I look back on those too and they make me smile, but I don't learn as much from those things as I do the times I made mistakes. And so uh, I guess my point is with this is, you know, there's no timeline to healing. You know, I think that a lot of people listen to so many podcasts and, and I hope one thing that you guys get from this podcast is that, uh, I'm not here trying to preach to anyone that I'm fully healed or I have all the answers. I certainly don't. Uh, this is a cathartic experience for me and hopefully you guys can uh, feel the authenticity and the realness through the microphone that I'm just here sharing experiences and interviewing and having discussions with people that are brilliant, that all have their various perspectives and I don't think there's one right answer to a lot of things, but the point is to at least be pursuing being better human beings, being better partners, well, also accepting where we're coming from and where we currently are. And I think those two things can exist in parallel harmoniously at the same time. And so, yeah, I still, you know, experience sadness. I still experience loneliness. I still deeply miss this human being. You know, I miss her smell. I miss her voice. I miss, uh, you know, being able to share time with her and, and be in the mountains and, and run trails and do all these beautiful things that speak to my soul. Um, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, right? That missing someone, there's nothing unhealthy about that, you know. No, and and of course, like self-admittedly, very codependent in my past relationships. But missing someone isn't, you know, just delineate doesn't just delineate codependency. Like, you know, it's healthy to miss someone you care about, specifically if they leave your life in a traumatic fashion, you know, or if they choose to leave you. And I think that's okay. You know, it's completely healthy as a human being to miss somebody. And of course, if you dwell on it too much and it completely sucks the life out of your of your life, you know, rebuilding your life, that's a different story. That's definitely happened to me in the past. And that's, you know, sometimes it happens to me currently. I'll just have days where I'm just, you know, sort of consumed by grief or by loss. And that's okay too. Like, that's just part of being human. Like, you're going to be sad sometimes. You're, you're going to, especially in times like this, when you lose someone you love deeply, right? Um, and you don't have any communication with them or, or, you know, or maybe you do want to reach out to them, but the ball's not in your court. You know, you've done, you've done enough on your side. I mean, there's so many different variables and, and things that could happen. So like whatever is going on for you in whatever capacity, it doesn't have to be a romantic relationship. It could be a friendship, could be a child, could be a, you know, whatever. It could be a parent relationship. But I think like people need to also give themselves a the time to look at those things and analyze and adjust and, you know, find a new perspective and give themselves the grace to sort of feel the full weight of the loss or the grief or the sadness or the loneliness uh, and not think that you're defined by these things because we all experience them collectively. But I think a lot of times the vibe I get on social media and this like sort of pseudo woke, you know, I got all the answers culture is that there's a timeline for everything, you know, like, well, however many years you've been together, just divide that by two. And that's the amount of time it takes to get over someone. And that is complete bullshit guys. Like you don't know how long it's going to take. You know, I love this person more than I've ever loved a single living organism on this planet. And, uh, you know, I still love this person to that much. I shouldn't say loved love, uh, present, uh, because that love never stops. That's, that's my love to give. And, um, you know, even if I fall in love with someone else, I'm still going to love this person as well. And, you know, I think I, I, 
I've developed more grace and more compassion for myself knowing that like, that's okay. Like I'm not judging myself as I used to for, you know, feeling like sad for not having this person in my life anymore. Right. And I think that's okay. That's completely okay. And I think the hardest thing specifically when you've, when you're really looking at it holistically and you're looking at your mistakes and the times you could have done things differently. And oh my God, guys, there are plenty of times I wish I had back. Let me tell you. And I say that in humility and honesty that there's so many times I wish I would have had back. Um, But you don't get those times back, right? And that's part of the reason why I created this podcast is to hopefully share my experience, the guests share their experience so that hopefully collectively as a culture, as a species, as a society, we can start to minimize those times that we wish we had back. You know, we're always going to make mistakes, but hopefully if we can learn and grow from them, we don't repeat those patterns or mistakes that are usually, you know, attributed to honestly our shadow, our childhood, our repetitive patterns and relationships, um, our avoidance, our anxious behaviors, you know, uh, it, it, everything that we do has a root, ladies and gentlemen. And let's not forget that. Like, you know, we're complex organisms that are simple at the same time. Uh, but I think the simplicity is found in looking at ourselves, right. And observing how we interact with specifically people we love deeply when we're in conflict, right. Or, or when we're happy and when things are easy, you know, what makes it easy? What makes us happy? Like what makes conflict start? Like, when are we being short? When are we being judgmental? When are we, you know, criticizing without a purpose? You know, when are we, tearing someone down instead of building them up. And I think as I've looked more and more at, you know, my sort of just history of the relationship, you know, that I lost, I've learned so much about myself as a man, as a partner, you know, as an individual. Um, and those are invaluable lessons in my mind because, uh, I, you know, without my love, for this human being and her love for me, I never would have gotten there, you know, even in the pain of loss and, uh, with my crash and everything that happened in 2019 with my injuries. And to be honest, still going through my shoulder issue. Uh, it's, it's just a huge learning experience. If you accept the invitation to learn, to grow and to look at yourself. I, I made a post a couple days ago about extreme accountability and it resonated with a lot of people. And that's one of the points that, Renee Wild and I talked about uh, a couple shows ago because it's so easy for us, especially after a relationship, to just look at the other person and be like, well, this person was this, they did this, they did that, you know, they're a horrible person. Or, you know, we'll even say, oh, no, they're a good person, but, you know, they have a lot of problems. And, and there's all these, these qualifiers we put in to sort of make us feel better and to sort of avoid accountability. You know, we'll, we'll maybe take little breadcrumbs of accountability for ourselves, but we'll never fully own all of our shit. Why? Because it fucking hurts. It makes you feel like a really bad person. But the whole idea is not to like feel like a bad person with that, but it's to take that legitimate data in real time, reality, and stop concocting narratives in our head and be like, oh no, when were we short? When did we shut down? When did we avoid? How might we have triggered them when they said this to us? How might we have triggered their past trauma? How might we have not been aware? How might we have been more aware in this situation? We can find those things, people. But we have to be looking, right? You have to care. You have to have enough selfless love above yourself to be able to look at the times you fell short and not to, you know, self-implode or or criti- criticize yourself to where, you know, you're non-existent and you keep beating yourself up because a lot of us do that too. But to be real with your role, 
in the function and the dysfunction. You know, whenever I ask someone about, like, let's say they went through a divorce or a breakup, like, the, the thing I listen to the most is how they talk about their past partner. And, you know, a lot of people will just be like, well, they're emotionally avoidant, this and that. And it's not like those things are untrue. I, I really appreciate people sharing those things. But I'm also listening for, well, how are you hard to be with? When did you fuck up? You know, how did you trigger them in this situation? When did you shut down? Those are the things we really should be focusing on because that's how we get better. We can't control another person anymore, right? Especially if they're out of our lives. And nor should we want to because it's their work and their job to meet us there. And, you know, I see a lot of these sort of diverging polarity thing with, you know, the sexes, with masculinity, with, with femininity. And these, these are what the polarity should represent. And this is what, you know, a man should do. This is what a woman should do. And that is fucking ridiculous. We should be meeting each other in the middle. And that's where a conscious partnership exists. That's where relating exists. That's where practicing love exists. And you're not always 50-50, right? It's, it's a seesaw. It swings back and forth depending on life, depending on so many things. But one person shouldn't be showing up more than the other, right? Like we have to, you know, it's about building awareness between the two. And I know I'm going on tangents here, but you guys know me well enough now. That's that's the deal with this show is we're just kind of rambling our feelings and our our um, experiences here. And hopefully it's of, you know, meaning to you guys. But anyways, before I get to the show, I just want to shout out with you guys. Like, you know, it's been a, a tough week for myself with packing stuff up and I want to be real as always, uh, you know, and just like everyone else, man, I still experience extreme loneliness from time to time, um, whether it has to do with the loss of my past relationship or just loneliness that would exist no matter what, you know? Um, and so, yeah, packing up that, that picture and that painting brought tears to my eyes as it always does. And, uh, it's, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing. It just is life. It means you cared. You know, I, I used to have a coach when I was in, uh, playing little league and you know he would talk about being nervous when you're at the plate you know hitting and you know it's it's a like whatever two outs and the bases are loaded and you're down by a couple runs and you know you can either win the game or, or lose the game for your team and I think one of the things you know he talked about is like if you're nervous it just means it's important and you care that's what nerves do and you can choose how you use those nerves right and and that goes to every emotion, whether it's, you know, feeling nervous or feeling scared or feeling fearful or feeling excited or feeling happy, you know, uh, we can, you know, really choose how we're experiencing those emotions and where we're feeling them in the moment. And for me, it's been really helpful to just sort of like sit down when I'm experiencing an emotion and, and trying to understand where I'm feeling in my body and know when I'm like picking on myself for no reason. And I'm, you know, sometimes I'll relive experiences where I, you know, really said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing or hurt someone I cared about and really start to kind of shit on myself in a way, you know, and I have to recheck myself and be like, look, is this productive? Like I want to hold myself accountable for sure. But how am I speaking to myself? Like I need to be utilizing these situations to be better in the future for myself, for others, um, because I want to be better right? But just to utilize them to beat yourself up, that's that's not building yourself, right? That's sort of destroying yourself. And so I think it's really important to be conscientious of that uh, when we're taking extreme or utilizing extreme accountability in our lives is that it's not so you can just des destroy this, your sense of self. The point is to build your sense of self up enough to where you can take criticism, you can look at your mistakes, uh, whether it's from yourself or from another, and you know, give yourself the grace of using those mistakes as lessons and getting better, right? So 
that's the whole point of bringing this up is that, you know, I'm continuously looking at um, my past relationship, analyzing, you know, times I could have showed up better, um, things I could have said differently, times I could have been less angry, less resentful, you know, um, been more compassionate, showed more empathy, uh, spoken in, you know, more love languages, you know, and there's a lot of times I could have done that, ladies and gentlemen, and hopefully, uh, you know, the more I say that, the more you can see that in your own life and the more you look for those answers and lessons in your own life. Cause I think if you're not here learning about yourself, I don't know what you're doing, you know, man, all this external pursuit, you can do it to your dead and then never really realize who you are until the last breaths. I'm reading a book by Bill Clot, uh, Bill Plotkin, excuse me. Soulcraft is a pretty well-known book and in it, uh, sort of Bill describes the idea of the soul and spirit and how a lot of people go through their entire lives never knowing their shadow or their deepest parts of their soul because they're so busy pursuing these externalities and trying to build this facade. And he's like, not that that's not important, but if you don't get to know yourself, you can never really fully give yourself or love someone else either because in order for two souls to meet on the deepest of levels, which many of us yearn for really, it's sort of our innate yearning is that deep connection of being seen, right? We hear that a lot. I see you. I'm seen by you. Right. And Plotkin talks to this in his book. I highly recommend grabbing it. I'm on chapter four and the writing's brilliant. I think it was published in uh, 2003. So it's a little bit old, but man, beautiful writing. Um, So, yeah. So, currently in the process of moving and um, it's stressful. Everyone knows moving is stressful, but it's even more emotionally charged for me for, for various reasons. And, you know, it'll be nice when I get settled in the new place and get the studio set up and get back to a, um, a habit. I'm definitely a creature of, of habit. Uh, you know, I like to go to bed the same time, wake up the same time, you know, love my mornings. So when I'm in flux and moving, probably a good thing for me to get better at and breathe into, but you know, I definitely don't like it. Uh, you know, it's not my normal. Well, okay guys, thank you guys for being here so much. Um, I can't tell you all enough how I appreciate your ears and your time being spent here with me, with the guests that I bring on. Um, I'm really loving this show and it's been such a long time coming to do something like this and hopefully it keeps growing. I'm having a great time doing it. Um, I hope you're getting some value out of the episodes. I mean, in fact, I know a lot of people are, I get so many messages saying like, thank you so much for sharing this is how I feel or, or, or even people like, Hey, I actually view this differently and I'm really interested in that too. Um, but this week we have Miss Danae Logan on the show and I met Danae through Instagram, uh, via, I think a, a fellow, another therapist. She works, um, in the tat lab as well as Tawny Lyons, who was a past guest, uh, under John Kim, who's the angry therapist. So she actually co-hosts a podcast with John's partner. Uh, it's an awesome podcast. I will definitely link to that in the show notes. You guys should go listen to that too. Cause Danae and her, uh, co-hosts they they do amazing things talking about awesome stuff so definitely check them out and uh yeah i really love danae's content online i'll link to her instagram in the show notes as well go check out some of her memes and her writing um you know i just i love what she's putting on paper and you know if i could read a little bit about her bio from her website uh she says first and foremost above all things she is a seeker which i love because i feel the same way i feel like i'm consistently trying to learn in various avenues of life, specifically self-knowledge and self-wisdom. Um, she says, I've spent most of my adult life seeking connection, seeking authenticity, seeking peace. Early in life, the more unattainable these elements appeared to be, the more vital it felt for me to attain them. 
Somewhere along the way, I realized that I feel most alive in the process of deep conversations. God, I completely agree with that. I feel the deepest sense of embodiment when I'm flowing and breathing through a sweaty yoga practice. I feel my deepest sense of certainty when I'm standing in my own truth and working to practice self-acceptance. And Danae received a master's degree in counseling with an emphasis in depth psychology. She is currently a practicing therapist as well. So I'll link to her webpage in the description if you want to check out her work or possibly work with her. That's how you get in touch if you like the content in this episode. I'm so thankful for Danae coming on this show. Um, such a like real, authentic, good human being. And you know, she shares a lot of her own life experience and then, of course, her own perspective with her clinical background and then just, of course, her spiritual and, and uh, you know, emotional growth on her end obviously plays into her work and her answers. And I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And if you do, please leave us a five-star written review on Apple. Uh, legitimately, that helps so much and costs you no money at all to do. It just takes a couple seconds, but it really does help the show grow. So if you're listening, take the time. Go leave us a five-star written view on Apple. Subscribe on Apple and Spotify so you get updates when new shows launch and share it on social media. Um, if you haven't followed me yet, at that Barraza boy on Instagram, we would appreciate that too. Join the club. Uh, leave some comments on the memes. Let me know how they resonate with you. I'd love to interact with people. And without further ado, Danae Logan. Well, Danae, Thank you so much for joining on the show today. Uh, I've been, you know, following your work since I found you on social media and I love the stuff you share. And obviously we have a lot of like mutual connections and like, I think the mental health space and just personal growth or just whatever you want to call it, being a human. Um, but can you give everyone some background on what you do, who you are and you know, how you've become this wonderful human being you, you are today? Ah, well, that's so nice. And the feeling is so incredibly mutual, Nico. Um, so yeah, I am a therapist and um, a marriage and family therapist and a mindfulness coach based in Los Angeles. And, you know, I think I, um, I work in a private practice called Flow House Therapy. And what's really beautiful about Flow House is it's just um a really holistic space. So we sort of draw from all of the different modalities. We do like a lot of somatic work. And when we were open, we haven't for a while, but um, it included like acupuncture in the space and um, just, you know, all of the different like healing modalities that we might draw upon. Um, we really feel like are valuable and like speak to in terms of our work with clients. Um, I was a yoga teacher and I mean, technically still am for mm. a lot of years here in Los Angeles. And so I certainly, um, you know, just bring a lot of like body awareness into the work that I do with clients. That's always um, a big part of like the way that I work and the way that I sort of sense things. Um, sort of intuitively, I think a lot of times as I'm sitting with someone, but yeah, I think, you know, um, we sort of connected and met through the space of social media, which I think is such a cool um, way that people are starting to have just an awareness of mental health and like getting a little bit like, like real with how am I doing really and like curious sure. about how we're really doing. And I think it's, it's inspiring to see um, so many people following mental health accounts and like having conversations in their personal lives based on like mm. what's sprouting up in the space, you know? I completely agree. Yeah. And I, it's interesting because social media is such like a, 
seesaw for me. You know, I mm-hmm. feel like I waste a lot of time on it <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of unhealthy tendencies, but then, you know, there's a lot of great connections and, and growth that it's been inspired. I feel like it's a tool, right? Just like mm-hmm. it's all in how you use it. And I think as people become more conscientious of their interactions with the internet and like their relationship with social media and how it affects our interpersonal relationships or relationships with ourselves. Like, I mean, for me, you know, it's funny you bring that up because like, I think for a long time I would catch myself using social media as an escape mm-hmm. from dealing with shit. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll just post a pretty photo when I'm running in the mountains or talk about something great, you know, and I think a lot of people do that. And hopefully like you've alluded to our culture is sort of going through a rebranding phase, if you will. And, you know, hopefully authentically saying that it's okay to legitimately talk about your humanness, which mm. is, you know, you're not always just crushing it. Yes. And, you know, your relationships aren't always just soaring, you know, um, is to be human is sort of to feel the you know entirety of existence, right? The ups and the downs. And I think when we're only showing people the ups, we're sort of creating this house of like, oh, if you're ever feeling below normal, you must just be like, you know, not normal. Yes. You know what I mean? And that's such an interesting thing, especially, and I feel like I come from like the athlete world where mm. most athletes have contracts where they have to post like, you know, you're crushing it, you're training, your training volume's incredible, or you're just, you know, crushing every day. And I really have resonated towards the athletes or just influencers, if you will, that are sharing like stuff about their mental health, you know, sharing stuff about their relational lives, like being a parent, like these other struggles that are so like quintessentially human and not just, um, you know, how kick-ass they are. I really Mm -hmm. appreciate that these days, you know? Yeah. So, Absolutely. I think that's that's one of the things that I have admired about you and the way that you show up in that space, Nico. But also, um, you know, what I loved about your podcast, I remember I listened to the first episode that you put out and so much of what you were saying just feels really in alignment with, you know, what I feel like is a big part of my mission in the world as a mental health professional and um, like what I do in my own podcast, which is just like, let's like sort of destigmatize having conversations about how we're really doing. Let's um, humanize the fact that everybody is going through something always, like nobody is getting through this life unscathed. And, um, you know, I I feel like a big mentor and friend of mine um, has been John Kim. And that was like Mm -hmm. a huge permission slip for me because you know, when you go through school as a therapist, there's just so much, um, this is the way you're allowed to show up in the world as a therapist. You sort of like, it's not like quite as much of a blank slate that you need to be anymore, but it's very much like, do not like self-disclose too much because then people's projections are going to be like really sort of, um, fired up around that. I think that happens anyway. And I think that, you know, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of, and I, this is the one space that sometimes I'm a little bit challenged with in terms of social media and like the mental health professionals there is, I think that sometimes there can still be a little bit of like, you know, directive, like this is what you need to do versus like, we're all human, like attempting to figure this out. Right. I really appreciate you saying that because, you know, I first went to therapy when I was 23 after a breakup, you know, Mm. and I was like single young man. I was just like, I need to figure this shit out. Right. Mm. There's some other things at play here that I'm not aware of. And, um, one of the things I really appreciated was the therapist at that time, my first interaction, you know, she was very much like an anecdotal experience person. Like she, like I know in in clinical therapy school, you're really told not to sort of like you use a lot of personal narrative or like, cause you know, you're, 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 you're the sort of facilitator of treatment, right? You're Mm. not really like, you're not supposed to build like a really close personal connection, although there needs to be some sort of connection there. And I feel like the therapists that I connect with the most are the ones that like are sort of 
bridging the gap or stepping outside that box because you know this what you learn in psychology school being a marriage family therapist like it's not always correct it's just like based on norms right it's based on a bell curve and mm. i think the majority of human beings actually like respond better to personal connection and I, there, there's gray area you know depending on what you're dealing with but for me it's like i always connect better with someone that is sitting in trauma as well and being authentic about that because if someone's speaking down to you kind of like you're alluding to like hey i have all the answers it's like no no we fuck none of us fucking have all the answers first of all and um i'm here because i'm just like trying to be better you know and i'm not going to be perfect i think like one of the things a lot of people that haven't been to therapy think i think probably a lot of men too is like you're gonna Mm. go and it's just gonna heal your shit you know and i feel like the best way i can describe therapy for me is like you sit in there as long as like you've 30 years of trauma. It's not going to just take one year, but you sit in there as long as you can. And it's like this person, hopefully if they're good, because therapists come in all different, you know, flavors and, and abilities, depending on the person they're treating, they sort of open this window outside and they're just like, look, there's a storm going on outside mm-hmm. and sometimes it's sunny, but you, your responsibility is to go out there and you have to sit in it and sort of experience it, whether it's like physical embodiment, like you brought up, which I honestly had no clue about outside of a year ago. Um, and uh, like somatic therapy was a brand new word for me probably a year ago. Um, but I guess, yeah, the, the whole point is like, you know, there's so many like the 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 sort of I wouldn't even say patient, but the person that's attending therapy with the therapist, like it's such an intimate relationship. And it's really about finding someone that, you know, connects with you and isn't just going to enable you. Because one of the mm. things I struggle with is is some people go to therapy seeking to be validated. You know, they, they really just want to be like told they're fucking doing a great job and they're awesome and they don't have any problems. <laughs> and I don't want to pay someone to do that. I want to pay someone to tell me what's up, you know, mm. like when have I been, you know, um, sort of, uh, you know, not aligning my truth. When have I been misleading? When I've, when have I been hurtful, especially the times that I can't see, like those are the small nuances that build up, you know, resentment or whatever over time, especially in a relationship. And that's mm. the shit I value because that person can sit on the outside, look inside and be like, from a third party perspective that's not emotionally tied into this dynamic whether it's the dynamic within yourself or with another they can be like well have you ever thought about this way or is like you know this part of your childhood playing into this or is this response like a pattern you know Mm. those are the things i want to learn from therapy and you know i'm not not to be overly critical here but i do feel like some people go in and they're just like okay like tell me how i'm a victim you know Mm. And, and it's it's like well we all are victims in certain circumstances, for sure, some more than others. But is that really going to help, you know, in the end of the day, like outside of acknowledging, you know, is it really going to help us be better or change, you know, the situation we're putting ourselves in to be victims? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I love that. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, I come from a depth psychology perspective, which is mm. basically like we it's not exactly narrative therapy, but it's sort of like, you know, zooming out on our life and looking at it in the context of almost like Joseph Campbell's work of the hero's journey, right? So yeah. if I look at like these various chapters of my life, can I hold it in the context of like, what was this chapter supposed to teach me, right? So instead right. of like, um, why is this happening to me? It's like, how is this happening for me? And like, what yeah. am I supposed to learn from this? And I think you so beautifully spoke to, um, I think the idea that so many people have about therapy and 
and actually life in general, which is that this is sort of a linear process. Like, you know, like we're, we're supposed to like check off certain things off a box. We're supposed to like meet certain goals. We go to therapy to like quote, fix ourselves. And I just, I don't believe that's what this journey is about. You know, I think we're continuously in this like evolving process of knowing ourselves a little bit more and a little bit more forever, you know? I completely agree. And it's, I love that you say that because, uh, you know, a good friend, uh, who I talked to a lot, who's a retired pro cyclist, he, he went through a separation a little bit after my separation, both of our relationships were like long-term, very serious. And he mm-hmm. sent me a note a couple of days ago, you know, just talking about sort of the guilt he still has of the times that he, you know, he was triggered or his, his trauma response, or he was angry or he yelled or something like that. And I really appreciate people talking about those things because mm-hmm. a, it's hard and, you know, not to hold yourself to such a sword where you're like, you can self-destruct. Cause I've done that multiple times in my life. Cause I'm hypercritical. Right. But I really appreciate someone doing that where they're like, you know, they can sort of understand that they've been wronged as well, but they can't be responsible for that. They can only be responsible for their actions and their words. And I find myself sort of, you know, even being a little bit more of a year out from my past separation, seeing that more in myself, like, you know, um, like when I was triggered or when I, when I said hurtful things or when I, you know, got angry, like those are the times that I want to change. And Mm -hmm. I wish I had those times back. Unfortunately, you don't get them back. But I think being aware of, you know, each specific instance, why it happened, like looking into them is a huge thing in the healing process. Because I feel like a lot of times when we make mistakes, especially when we hurt somebody we love, we avoid thinking about it. Because it's quite painful, you know, because it makes us feel like horrible human beings. But it's really not about being a bad human being. Like, I think the cathartic thing about a thing like a group therapy session is seeing how many people have made the same mistakes, you know. And it's not to just say, go ahead and keep making them. You know, that's not really the point here. But it's like being aware that you're not alone, whether you've been hurt or you've hurt someone else. But the point is, is to be aware of it. And then through that awareness, you can hopefully change that pattern because you have to catch yourself, right? Like, oh, Mm. I'm being triggered now. Or maybe, for instance, just not being around a specific person that does that to you, too, you know, depending on the situation. Because I'm always for, like, healing relationships. Like, you know, I know you've been on uh, Mark's show, right? Both of you. Yeah. And so I think that's actually where I found both of you and um, both of you, meaning you and your uh, partner in crime that hosts the, the show with you. <laughs> and Vanessa. Uh, yeah, Vanessa. Yeah. And and I um, I like really uh, appreciate sort of when Mark brings up that closing ceremony him and Kai had, you know, because mm. at first I listened to it, I was like, dude, this isn't this is so not legit. Like, there's no way. And then I and then once I got to know more of Mark's stuff, I was like, no, this guy is like legit. Mm. You know, him and this guy are really doing it. And I wanted that so bad in this past relationship because I love this woman so much. And I think that if we can sort of get to that space, a lot of times we don't have to just throw love away, you know, Mm. like it doesn't mean you have to stay together, but you can certainly salvage a connection and and respect, you know, regardless of what's been broken, if both people can put in the work. But I think going back full circle, if you're not putting in the work yourself, like talking to someone like yourself, like seeking therapy or whatever modality it is to really get to know yourself better, to build self-knowledge, you're certainly not going to be able to hold that space for someone else. Mm. And, you know, if both people can't align in that way, it's just, it's hard. I think it's really hard for people to be like, be on this self, you know, growth journey and at the same time find someone that's equally in that space. And I'm curious your thoughts on this because in a dating realm where <laughs> social media and swipe culture, I, John talks about this a lot, which I find, by the way, I know you brought him up, but I find that guy fucking hilarious. Like, <laughs> I, I love listening to him because he is so just bluntly himself, Yeah, you know, and he coined the term, which I hear on the internet, baby arm, which is literally... <laughs> 
hilarious. Um, <laughs> I, I, I thought about like getting him a t-shirt, uh, just like sending it to him randomly. But I thought that like that dude's freaking hilarious. Oh my um, God. I'm going off on so many tangents here. I love but, it. Uh, yeah, I'm curious what you think about dating culture because, you know, how how does someone who, you know, all these things have to line up, right? You have to have like physical attraction, emotional, you know, depth, hopefully a similar levels. You know, if you have a growth mindset, like, you know, there's all these things that kind of have to line up. Yeah. In our world of like the lack of contentment, how, like, how do you go about structuring like, you know, what is okay to settle for, you know, mm. like, you know, because I find myself in that same issue, like, is, is that like a fair question? You know, I think that's a pretty heavily loaded question, but I'm curious as a therapist, like yeah. in the culture today of like Tinder and Bumble and Hinge and all these other things, when people seem to be more timid of going up to someone in person, you know, mm-hmm. like how how do we find someone that we're legitimately going to connect with? And like how, you know, do we know that like, I guess, how do we set up a, a set of standards or boundaries where it's actually fair to the other person that they're not living up to some ideal in our head that's like unachievable? I mean, I think it's such a beautiful question. And, you know, I, well, let me back up a little. I, you know, I, so I facilitate and I'm laughing so hard as you're talking about John, because John is like the funniest human Mm. um, I know. And, and I think, you know, so much of like what I understand about like this, I am in addition to being um, a therapist and I facilitate groups in um, John's uh, like platform, which is called like the TAT lab, okay. which is basically okay. like group therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do like all kinds of like mindfulness work and like wellness classes and things like that. But I'm telling you all of this to say that um, I facilitate groups on singlehood. And so these are a lot of like the conversations that we have in there. In addition to being Wonderful. a therapist, I am single now after being married for 11 years, which is just like such a fascinating thing to be like back in the world of singlehood. Um, You know, like, because when I got married, like dating apps weren't a thing. Like it was, you know, like nobody had even embarked on this stuff yet. So it's fascinating to have these conversations. It's fascinating to sort of explore with people um, the question that you're asking. And I think what I've come up with is that Dating to me becomes some of the most fertile ground to do our own inner work in noticing our activation points because, you know, we could be single forever, like pretty contently, like sitting in our own like narrative about who we are and, you know, like why we're okay. And then we get back in the world of dating and we meet someone and the minute that we like someone all of our stuff, right? All of our activation points come rushing back to the surface, all of our attachment wounds, all of our fears, all the ways we want to sort of like disconnect and, you know, um, run from the hills or run for the hills and just like all of our sort of like different ways of coping that we have, you know, basically incorporated through our lifetime, they come to the surface. So I love dating in the context of like, how can I use this as an opportunity to know myself a little bit more, right? Mm. And then it becomes less about like, whoever the person is, I think ultimately, and it sounds weird as I say this, like this person is just like a mirror, but but they are ultimately. They are a way to sort of show you all of these activation points. And then it, it really doesn't matter who the person is. I mean, of course we want to like have connection and partnership and we want to find someone that we have um, this kind of like sacred partnership. Like I love... Um, the idea of like just like finding someone where you're able to be in like a soul contract type of like mm. love where we're really yes. like working together to evolve as two people on this path together. Yes. 
But I think ultimately it's always about my own work. It's always about like what this person is activating in me. I don't know if that answers the question, but no, that's what it, it brought up. It does. And and I think the follow-up to that is, uh, this is always a question. I know like you're not going to have a specific answer. It varies for people. But one thing I struggle with is like we live, and Esther Perel talks about this, we live mm. in a culture of like, Monaga, Monaga-ish or Monaga-mish, right? It's like um, I, one person at a time as opposed to one person for the rest of my life, you know? And and uh, I'm curious on what you think about when someone is actually legitimately ready to start dating again after a separation, right? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people don't know and I see two sort of polar opposites. I see the person that has to be in a relationship that can never be alone, who's mm-hmm. using it to hide and is the same person in every relationship for 10 years and they've had four or five, right? Or a person, I'd say like probably like myself, which is, you know, they, you know, are hurt and they don't fucking date for like years, you mm-hmm. know, they'll just, they'll just absolve into, you know, hyper isolation or whatever. Yeah. And I know there's a healthy balance in between, but I'm curious on how do we build that own litmus test within ourselves where we know we're not using one of these polarities to avoid or to escape versus actually ready for connection again, you know, like what, what would you tell someone in that space? I mean, I'm a therapist, so obviously I would say it's all grist for the therapy mill. It's all useful, but I think that, um, you know, I certainly the former, I think can be the more problematic of, of the, the ways of being in the world. Right. Like I just jump into the next thing because I don't want to feel the discomfort of being by myself ever. Right. Right. Um, I think when that is the case, that might be the place where with a client, I might push back a little bit. Like what might it feel like though, to just like sit in the discomfort of these feelings of being with yourself for a moment. Right. Um, in terms of the latter, the person, and I, I certainly like can resonate and understand what you're saying in that. I also think that that can be a comfortable place to hide. And I'll call myself out on that one for sure. Yeah. Um, that I think that sometimes we have to push ourselves to connect without a destination, right? Like I think so mm-hmm. much of the time it's like, I'm going to get back into dating because I'm ready to meet my person. Like yeah. I have really focused my energy on like, I am open to what the universe wants to bring me, but I'm actually not like attached to like what the outcome needs to look like, right? Like if I meet someone and the energy is just like, feels really good and there's Mm. like deep attraction and like we're wanting to like explore that I think it is so much more helpful to just like be dating without a destination without like um an idea of like is this the person that I could see myself with or not because I think a lot of times there's just so much like of an energetic pressure point in that like you know like like you were saying before then I start to just like really be critical of every aspect of this person because I'm like, I don't know if I can see like spending the rest of my life with this human. So probably like, let me go ahead and nip this in the butt. And it's like, yeah, yeah but if I just stay open to like, what if this is like a beautiful friendship and it can mm-hmm. evolve into that? Or maybe they have a friend that if I don't stay connected to this person, I would never meet that might be right. my soulmate. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I, I'm curious on what you think about, you know, I think a lot of people like, cause I, I'm always open for, you know, dating to morph into a beautiful friendship. I think a lot of folks, you know, they'll, they'll feel sort of slighted if you build a relationship and then all of a sudden you get to a point where you're like, Hey, I just want to like, you know, and even if you're honest and authentic and you're just like, I just want to keep this as a friendship. I, I think a lot of people are in the space and I shouldn't say a lot. There's some people that are, but I think some people aren't in the space where they can not take that from an ego perspective mm-hmm. and from a soul perspective, you know? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I'm sure I was 
doing that in my younger years. But you know, for me, it's just like if someone were to, if I were to be on a date with someone, they're like, "Hey, I'm just not really interested." But like, that's totally fine. Like it doesn't it doesn't make me feel less of a person, you know. Um, but I think for a lot of people, it does. And I'm curious on what you think on how to navigate those situations because there's so many like instances where I talk to people and they really you know, value this human being that they've been on, you know, four or five dates with or whatever, but they don't see themselves being romantic in that way, but they still want this person in their lives. But they have this inclination that if they were to sort of tell this person like, Hey, you know, we just want to be friends. Like they would hurt someone's feelings or, mm. you know, they would, they would offend somebody. And there's always these like gray areas that are really hard to navigate in romance or in friendship like this one yes. where, it really depends not only yourself, but the other person. Are they able to receive that information and not, you know, crumble? And I think that goes back to a sense of self-worth. Yeah. But I, I'm curious on how you think, <laughs> how do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, that's real. And I think you're absolutely right that that has to do with our ego attachments. Um, there's a line in The Course in Miracles that I really love. And I feel like I repeat to clients a lot that is, um, those who see themselves as whole make no demands. Right. And I think we can get so sort of in this space of like, this is the way I feel like this needs to look that we're not open to like, like how this is supposed to be. Right. Like, can I just be like open to everything attached to nothing and just sort of say like the person I'm meant to journey forward with, I'm not going to miss them. Like I always, I feel like my mantra is like, what is meant for me will not miss me. And if I can just sort of hold dating in that space, um, then it's all perfect. And you're right, though. I think that that is often um, the other person will meet that with some resistance. And I think that that's okay. I think the best we can do is sort of be really upfront with our intention, like you spoke to, like, this is where I am. This is what I'm interested in. And if I'm clear, then clear is as kind and loving as I can be. And then what you do with that, that's your side of the street. That's not actually for me to like clean up for you, you know? Yes. Okay. So when we talk about unattachment, it seems like you're very much like, you know, it's like this Buddhistic thing where it's like, yeah. you know, like, like, like fully embraced, but unattached. I'm curious, like mm. I've gone back and forth through like these theories and, and I really do think that there's a, a level of attachment that's innately human. You know, if mm. we look at childhood, if we look at like a, the image of a child holding on to their mother or father's finger, you know, it's like we, we all want attachment or connection on some level. And you know, but I think there's a healthy line of attachment. Do you think attachment is is a rec- is like a requisite to being a healthy human being, or do you think like completely we need to be unattached and you know have more of a nonchalant approach to love and to relationships? Yeah. I mean, listen, I, there's so many things that are the practice for me, right? Like certainly like, does that mean that I like never have attachments to someone that I'm like romantically interested in that I like, I'm not, um, I'm not going to get my heart broken. Of course not. Right. Like, of course I like, I'm here in this physical human realm and, um, all of those things are real. I, I, so my friend Vanessa that you were talking about, um, we did this retreat last weekend that was all women. And we were sort of talking about this thing of self abandonment and how we get back into a space of inner belonging. And Vanessa's very like, she's a New Yorker. She's like the really like masculine energy of the two of us. And so she's like all about like keeping it real, dropping the F bombs. Like we are like the into each other's yang in every way. And I'm just like the, the more like feminine, like maternal energy of like, no, it's all love. Come, you know, like, and so she talks about like the codependency and how you break patterns and all of that stuff. And I've sort of like, okay, and then let's talk about the bigger spiritual meaning of it all. And so a lot of the women were like, Danae, I just wish that I could be where you are and like, you know, like be past all of this like suffering. And I was like, but but, but back up. (laughs) 
Please for a moment and let's get a little bit real. Like me holding these principles is like the higher truth of what I know about life and myself and like what I want to remind myself when I'm in the space of suffering, when I'm in the space of suffering, um, because someone has hurt my feelings and I would really like this relationship to like grow into something and that's not how they feel. Um, then I remember and my mantra becomes what is meant for me will not miss me. But that does not mean like I am immune to suffering. It's just like, these are the higher truths that I have to remind myself of when suffering creeps in, you know? Yeah. And I, I appreciate you saying that because I feel like since I've started this podcast, people are like, oh man, you're, you must be so healed, you know, or so enlightened. <laughs> and I'm like, no, this is no. That's the opposite guys. <laughs> like I made this so I can share, you know, these wonderful conversations with with people or wherever they listen from. But, um, you know, me sitting here talking about this, uh, I still struggle on a daily basis. You know, I Mm. still have a ton of the same stuff I talk about um, through this thing. And I appreciate you saying that because I feel like specifically in your line of work, being a therapist, like people look at therapy or psychologists or psychologists is just, they must have squared away relationships. You know, they must have it figured out. I'm like, no, they're human beings. Like, you know, we're, we're all trying to navigate the human experience and, you know, people in your line of work just happen to study it a bit more and sort of put a name to the crazy. Mm. Um, but we're all certainly experiencing it, you know? Um, and I think that, yeah, I think we need each other to sort of get to a point, um, of, you know, stability. We're never going to be fully balanced. It's impossible for us. You know, if you're alive, you're not going to be fully balanced, but you can get, you know, somewhat close to, to be Mm. a little bit more like center of gravity on top of the wave instead of like, toes over the nose of the board just about to face dive you know and I think that that. like yeah you know what I mean I think it's just all about like you know just relating it back to sport I think I do a lot of a lot of that with with where I come from but it's you know just just trying to be able to get to a point where you know you're you're always just looking at yourself and your response and and rarely you know pointing fingers at another person and I I when you you said something like when you first started that that uh piece off is that like you know it's really like this this self-accountability where you're not sort of being like well this person you know I I I immediately made me think of like I gave my ex-partner like this ultimatum Mm -hmm. like uh, three years after a relationship where I was like you know what like I want someone to meet me on this like emotional level like I want someone to show up for me I feel like you're being very selfish you know it was a constant sort of nagging point in our relationship and those things I, I wasn't wrong about like I still feel like those things but I think the way I approached it was like you either need to be this or not, you know, and that is a problem. Like, you know, mm. not, you know, I, I allowed a space for growth to happen. Growth didn't happen. But then all of a sudden it was like, I was giving this person an ultimatum who I loved, you know, either like change or, or not. And I think a lot of people get to that point where they're like, they'll practice these things they read in books or in therapy for a while. And then they'll get fed up with it, you know, because, because it's very hard as adults to change, especially when we're in love, especially when we have self-interest and other things at play. Right. Um, but another thing you, you alluded to is like the idea of practicing love as a team. Catherine Mm. Daniele brought this up and I'd never heard the term practicing love, you know, but Mm. I really like that because you can be in love with someone and it, you're not practicing love, you know, it's, it's just sucking energy out of both of you or one's putting in way more. I've been in that situation, way more energy than the other. And you both have to meet each other. I mean, it's going to be equal every day, but at some point someone has to kind of, you know, like swing up on the seesaw and if someone's always on the downstroke it's just gonna feel you're gonna feel exhausted you know and when I look at what I think are healthy relationships it's not like they're devoid of fighting devoid of struggling devoid of mistakes but they're able to whether it's heterosexual or homosexual come back into a space of like 
saying like, I was wrong. Mm. I'm sorry. Because it's for the betterment of the relationship and they value that container more than they value their own self-interest. You know, they have to balance the two. Because I think, especially in our society today, we are constantly told, you are amazing. You are the jewel of, you know, where you, where the sun is literally spinning around us yeah. and, you know, you're the center of the universe. And it's just, you can't really have that perspective with another, you know, like you create this new universe together and you still have your own individual ones. But if you're just focused on your own, this, you know, it's just not, you're not relating that the relational part of the relationship is not succeeding. I think a lot of people think, well, I love this person. They love me. So it's, it's good. You know, mm. we'll be good now. As long as we respect each other, we'll be good. And it's like, no, guys, it like it takes work, you know, yes. like you have to show up and practice every day. You can't just like do it once a month, you know? Yeah. I mean, I love this, um, like stating it as practicing love. I think that's really, really a beautiful way to speak to it. Um, you know, it's so funny. I like so Couples are sort of like my sweet spot. They're like my mm-hmm. jam, like for whatever reason, that's like what the universe has like sent me a lot of to do yeah. this work. And I love working with couples. I think it's fascinating to sort of like see the dynamics of like our wounds playing out and sure. um, supporting people and like bridging the gap of like where we're unable to like hear each other and meet one another. Right. Yeah. Um And I remember like two years ago when my marriage ended being like, oh, God, like I'm like the couple's therapist that like like, doesn't know how to make a relationship work. Credibility goes out. Right. So like my limiting beliefs were like, oh, sweet. This is really going to be great for business for a moment. And then I think I started to sort of say, but here's the thing, like. I feel like this gives me so much perspective and like an opportunity to really attempt to understand like what our wounds were and like what didn't work. And I feel so grateful now for um, the end of my marriage because I feel like it's given me so much like like a different level of curiosity in terms of like what happens um, from early on to the point of like meeting one another in relationships that just like I think our culture on so many levels and this is where I could go crazy, but um has made it like near impossible for us yes. to like really show up in um, like vulnerable, authentic connection. And one of the things I've been talking a lot about with couples is, you know, um, one of my favorite spiritual teachers, Wayne Dyer, um, oh, yeah. he has this uh, mantra that like was really like game changer for me, which is the mantra of the lower self is I need more. The mantra of the higher self is how do I serve? And I have been talking to couples a lot about like, what if we brought that into my relationship, right? Like, I think we are so from like an ego protected space of like what this person isn't doing for me, what I want that I'm not getting versus like, how do I like show up in support of the truth of this person that hopefully I should be believing in if I want to share my life with them and be of service to like supporting their mission and, and who they are in the world. And so often I find that that is not how we're loving one another and that to me is not love in action you know what i mean yeah i love that quote um it yeah it makes so much sense to me and i have caught myself doing that in my own relationships where it's like you know like if you just go back to service in any aspect of being alive mm-hmm. it's never going to lead you in the wrong direction now you might overgive in some instances for sure but yeah and you can evaluate that but i have this personal perspective where i'd rather be giving than sort of like you know demanding this rigidity of life that it has mm-hmm. to serve me in this way, you know, cause anytime I've, I've brought that to a relationship, it's never been healthy, yes. you know? And a lot of times, 
you know, like this stuff builds up over time. Like the first year, and I, we should talk about this as like the honeymoon phase, you know, it's like the first year, year and a half, like guys, it's, you know, everything's going okay. You know, it's like, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're just, you're sleeping with a new person, you know, it's like these new things, especially when you first move in with each other or whatever, however that happens. But I think a lot of people forget that like they'll get to a f- the fifth year of the relationship and they'll be struggling and they'll be fighting or whatever. And they think that just leaving and going with someone else will solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And maybe sometimes, but a lot of times you're going to run into that at the third or fifth year with another person. You know, like it's, it's just going to be different struggles. Right. And I think that we really need to reevaluate our mind. And this is what I really like about the school of life and Alain de Botton's teaching is that Mm. at some point you have to say like, this person's good enough, you Mm. know, and they have to say that to you and you have to realize that you're going to get to that point where, you know, you're going to fight, you're going to do these things, but that doesn't mean you'll be together forever. But part of practicing love is sort of to commit in that space of being like, you know, whatever is thrown at us, we're going to at least attempt to work through it, you know? in a balanced way right because a lot of people as soon as they get to like serious conflict or you know shit jumps rather just out you know i think like esther pearl talks about this and i i had so many different perspectives on like cheating and infidelity before i read her stuff Mm. and then when i read it it's like it's almost like a lot of infidelity is like a gateway to very deep healing if the two people can show up in a space but she also highlights like that's pretty rare you know most people Mm -hmm. are just like they don't want to know you know, especially someone that's been cheated on, they don't want to look at why this has happened because they just think it's the person's personal problem. And a lot of times it's not. A lot of times it's both parties, you know. Always. Something. Right, always. There we go. Yeah, well, you said always. it. I didn't want to say the word always, but I, I like. I'll stand by it. It is always, and I don't yeah. care. Like, it is always yeah. a dance that two people are doing. It is always, like, and, you know, I think relationships across the board, it is always an opportunity for me to look inward and take my 100% responsibility, mm. you know? I love I love that. I, and I, and I, you did bring this up about, uh, your separation and I and I feel the same way it's like if I would never would have loved my previous partner I've never loved an, a woman as much as I loved her mm. and if I would have never had that amount of love I wouldn't be here today working on the shit I was working on because again going back to when I was 23 and I got my heart broken for the first time that allowed me an x amount of depth to go in because I saw sort of this circle right but I've never loved a person this deeply where like it's cracked pretty much everything open where I'm like, no, this is a pattern. Like, this is how I'm showing up in all of my relationships. This is where I'm falling short. You know, I hate to use the word failure, but these are just discrepancies that I keep accumulating and then relating them back to my childhood where I'm like, oh, this is exactly what I learned when I was nine years old, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, making those connections. I would never have gotten there without the love for this human being, you know, and I, and I'm, I'm curious what you think about that. Do you think it's, do you think it's like, required to go through sort of deep trauma or deep heartbreak to get to this point of like self-introspection or are some people getting there and not because I don't think I would have gotten here without the pain personally but I mean yes (laughs) and again this is like I you know I come from like the depth psychology perspective where like there is no growth without like deep discomfort there is no like evolution without us Um, It's like, you know, turning up the fire enough for us to be uncomfortable enough to look inward. And I think, I don't know that like most of us like really grow through like, you know, skipping through (laughs) the fields and like everything's good. I think it's normally like through our deepest discomfort that we start to like be open to, um, to like understanding and seeking. It's almost always I find through a dark night of the soul of some sort. Right. And so, yeah, I think 
so often we resist like the what is this here to teach me and can I be um, and listen this like this is not me suggesting that we sort of spiritually bypass and get to the like oh it's all perfect it's all like you know like that's not what I'm saying even a little bit I think we have to stay in the fire and feel the discomfort for a while so that like when we're ready to emerge from the fire we can make meaning and sort of understand what this was all about but Mm. um, but we got to stay in the discomfort for a while and we got to be willing to to go there you know let's talk about staying in the discomfort but first i wanted to do you know who ronnie coleman is he's like this old bodybuilder mm-hmm. uh, i think he was based at la but very famous like bodybuilder but mm-hmm. when you told me like you know everyone wants a spiritual bypass it reminds me of this quote he always said <laughs> he was obviously juiced to steroids on his gills but he was like the best bodybuilder for a long time in the world and he would be shown in the gym, like lifting this insane amount of weight. And he would be like, everyone wants muscles, but ain't nobody want to pick up some heavy ass weight. That's you know, real. And, and, that, and that's <laughs> real, dude. It's like, you know, everybody wants to have a healthy relationship, but ain't nobody want to deal with their shit. And that's like kind of the thing, you know, it's like, um, that's where I find myself. It's like, I really want a healthy relationship. And that's why I'm doing this work. And it's not mm. just for myself. It's for everyone that comes in contact with me. It's for the kids I don't have yet. It's for the partner I haven't met yet. You know, that kind of thing. And, you know, I hope people have some preemptive, you know, view on this because, you know, when I just think about humanity and how we're responding to like global warming or climate change, it's like, guys, we need to be better at like acting on the information we do have, we do have and sort of believe in the facts that are in front of us when we've made mistakes, you know, where our patterns are leading us awry and work on that shit. Um, But I'm curious on, (laughs) you know, to go back to how we sit in discomfort, man, that's the interesting thing because so many people approach it differently, but I guess if we just go to the idea of, you know, a lot of a lot of us avoid discomfort, you know, we'll do mm-hmm. anything to not feel pain. You know, you know, for instance, like in a lot of times our natural reaction to being around a cliff or height is to be very scared because we mm-hmm. could fall and get hurt or die. Right. And I think that same sort of primal instinct is what comes out in a lot of our loving relationships where we just, oh, we don't want to be hurt. Mm-hmm we'll find some way to distract, some way to shell up and not experience that pain. And because we never, you know, get there, we never really are able to experience, I guess, truly profound growth because we're always sort of like getting to the edge, but not looking over, you know? And I'm curious on like somatically, and there's all these other ways, like what is the healthy path to sit with discomfort? How long should you sit with it? You know, and I know, I know that's a, broad question but for me for instance like I can I'm the kind of person that I can dwell on shit forever especially Mm. when I've done wrong right and that again going out of balance is the exact opposite of avoiding it it's like I'll use it to sort of self-inflict you know pain all the time and uh I'm curious on what how you think like where is the space in between of like avoidance versus like I guess self-destruction you know using it too much, you know, and, and how do we use pain and trauma in a healthy way or mistakes in a healthy way? Um, and what, what does it look like to truly sit in discomfort and learn from it as opposed to like, just suffer, you know? Yeah. Um, well, so, a, you know, a couple different layers there, right? So I would say, first of all, I think we have to meet ourselves with a lot of compassion around why we are so sort of risk aversive and why we're so sort of, um, 
you know, unwilling to feel discomfort. We are literally culturally conditioned to be that way. We are like the instant gratification culture, the like, you know, um, you sort of spoke to this earlier, the the parents that like, no, we don't want our kids to like even feel the discomfort of not getting first place. So everybody gets a first place ribbon, right? Like right. this is so much like what has um, been conditioned within us so much that we feel like if I feel any discomfort, it's like annihilation anxiety. Like I believe I will die from discomfort. Mm. And if that's what I believe, I'm going to resist that at all costs. So understandably, right? Um, So there's that. The actual path to starting to allow ourselves to feel discomfort, um, I believe through that psychology perspective is through shadow work. And so that basically looks like, um, you know, our shadow for anyone who doesn't um, have a background in shadow work or doesn't know what I mean when I say that is basically there are all of these things that we are sort of conditioned since we're very young to believe are like moral, immoral. Um, this is how I should feel about this versus like what it's okay to feel like all of these um these ideas that we're like implanted with from very young, right? And so there are aspects of self that we really judge based on what our conditioning was and you know, we are such multifaceted humans that some aspects of those things are going to be alive with us, within us, excuse me. Now, if we have been conditioned to believe, I'm just going to use the example of like sex, right? So like if I've been conditioned to believe that like sex is wrong as a woman, like I should not be a sexual being, um, like I, I should have all kinds of judgments about like my sexual self, then that will be like a shadow aspect of myself that I will basically like relegate to the basement of my my psyche, right? Like I don't mm. think about sex. I like have like shut that down, Um it's not a part of who I am, right? Sure. Yep. But it is a part of who I am. Mm-hmm. So what ends up happening is like what we resist persists. And, you know, like you see all sorts of like, you know, um, like real life examples of this, right? Like the politician who like rails against like someone um, sleeping with prostitutes and that's his life work. And meanwhile, he's like having sex with prostitutes on the side, right? Because yep. <laughs> his shadow is that like the thing that he has so deeply disowned within him is the thing that is like, like basically has power over him, right? And mm-hmm. that is what ends up like running the show of our lives if we don't integrate our shadow. And so, mm-hmm. you know, from the type of psychology that i I work with and that I sit with with clients, it's like instead of making ourselves wrong for these, you know, very human elements of self that we have relegated to the basement, why don't we invite them up the stairs, allow them to have a seat at the table and ask them, um, what would you like me to know? Right. What is it that I need to understand? And so often, um, once we bring whatever the shadow thing is up to the table, what it has to teach us is like, there's some inner child work that I need to do. There's some like going back into my childhood and understanding like how it made me feel when I was like minimized or not acknowledged or, um, you know, like wounded by my caretakers in some way that Mm. I really need to hold space for. And the more that I sort of make myself wrong for what was never wrong about me but was very human about me the more it's going to be this thing that's sort of running my life you know yes yeah I like that you bring up inner child work because uh you know for instance I um this is like before we got back together uh my ex-partner I went I took I was like paid for us to go to couples counseling I was like I really want this to work because we went to couples counseling for like three months helped a ton Mm -hmm. um but when the counselor or the therapist first set us down 
she was like talking to us about how both of our inner ch- children were sort of playing roles here. We weren't speaking from like this conscious perspective to each other, right? I'm sure you, you yeah. understand that you probably do that in your day-to-day life um, with, with, you know, clients. But I, you know, it's, it's interesting to me because I, one thing I've noticed specifically with people that, um, you know, quote unquote come from, I guess, more stable childhoods, you know, in their, in their sense, a lot of people will feel like they're demonizing their parent parental figures mm. or their, their their structure and they can't ever look at what was wrong or what was unhealthy because they think that they're you know not being grateful or they're they're you know going against their parents and i'm the opposite like i love my mom for so many ways raised by a single mom but man, I was around some unhealthy shit sometimes, you know? And, uh, I knew that when I was a kid too, I was like, this is not normal. Um, but there was a lot of amazing things too, but I know that saying the things that were unhealthy don't make my mom a bad human being. They make her human, you know? And, and she did do the best she could. Now, am I going to do better? Yes, I am. But I, it doesn't like make me love her any less. You know, I still have boundaries there, but I think for some folks and especially like even my, my past partner, like it was almost impossible for her to be like my parents might have done these unhealthy things when I was young, regardless of the stability. And I think this like this brings in race and culture, too, because I think certain cultures are are more prone to like mm-hmm. you can't say anything bad against your parents, you know, specifically like when you look at socioeconomic stratus too, like, you know, it's it's intriguing to me. And I feel like you can't really do any inner child work until you can hold space for seeing your parents humanity and knowing that yes there were times that they did stuff even if it was subtle even if it was like passive aggression or a way of punishment that you know they don't, parents don't have to physically hit a child or yell or scream at them to inflict trauma mm-hmm. you know like there's so many subtle ways that it happens and if we're not able to sort of look through a lens of openness at that as adults we can never get to the root of the problem and if we don't get to the root of the problem we can never fully give ourselves in a relationship because we're still hiding pieces of our shadow, which you brought up, you know, and it's I think it's tough for people in that space of of coming from, you know, a perspective of like, oh, I had a great childhood. You know, my parents are awesome. They really love me. They always supported me to look in a lens of, I guess, um, I guess a critical lens, I would say, you know, I know mm. criticism is such like a polarizing word, but but it is sort of a critical lens. And it's not to like criticize and and like go to your parental structure and be like oh you really failed me in this way it's so you can understand yourself better you know because it's really not about them anymore it's about you your success in a relationship your ability to love and to thrive as an adult and I'm curious on like how do you approach that with adults that you know come from a structure that's quote unquote more stable and I always put it in quotes because it's like it's really not it's just there's things that are more hidden you know that are that are more passive if you will as opposed to like someone screaming at you when you're a kid, you know? Um, yeah. How do you approach that? Because I feel like you can't really heal until you get to that point. <laughs> and if you're, if you're subconsciously pre- preventing yourself from getting to that point, you can go to therapy for five years and never really see your inner child. Yes. Yeah. Um, could not agree more. I think um, I love to say nobody gets through childhood unscathed, period. Mm, and that yeah. is because human beings raise human beings and yes. nobody has a perfect parent because none of us human beings are perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's so much liberation for me as a parent knowing that I am going to screw up my kid. I'm going to make mistakes as a parent. And I forgive me because that is what it means to be human. And hopefully what I will model for him is that 
I don't have to be perfect in order to be a good enough parent in order to like um, really express how much you are loved. Um, But you're absolutely right. I think that to me, it's not so much that it becomes like a red flag when someone says like, I had a a perfect childhood, I had a great childhood, as much as it tells me like, you know, our shadow work is like a little bit more deeply buried or like the armor is up a little bit more. And I, I say so often that like, if I had a dollar for every time I said this, I'd have a little chunk of change. Like we can, to your point, um, speak to the ways that we didn't get what we needed in childhood. Cause again, nobody does get everything they need in childhood. We can speak to those things without it meaning I don't love my parents or I didn't have amazing parents or, you know, they didn't show up the best they could with the tools that they had at the time. Um, Both things can be true. And, you know, this is like what we call in psychology that like the tensions of tension of the opposites, right? Mm -hmm. It can be true that I didn't get everything I needed and that I had amazing parents and we can hold both at the same time. But if we're so defended against the, you know, I didn't get everything I needed, you're right. Like we will not be willing to like really grow and evolve and, um, and be better because we're sort of like in this like black and white thinking of like things are either good or bad. Like there's, so much nuance in who we are Mm. as humans you know I agree I find that 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 sort of type of individual really comes from a parental structure where there's a lot of pride Mm. you know there's so much pride where the a parent can't admit they're wrong you know I will say like my mom made many mistakes but one thing I appreciate is that she you know as she got older and I became an adult and I talked about this with her she's able to be like "I'm, I'm sorry I was wrong you know like I made mistakes as a parent and I think that was really essential to me you know, being like, just, just even like what you said about your, your child, it's like, you're going to make mistakes, but for those people that can't admit how they played a role, like if there's like this illusion of perfection or this very much, I always think of it as like the Stepford wives thing where like, there's the white picket fence, there's the, there's the mom and the dad, the two, the two kids, they have a dog, you know, there's green grass everywhere. It's like, even within that home, there's a lot of shit going on because we're human beings, yeah. you know? But if the production of, of that through society and through culture is that you come out of that, you know, is two perfectly whole individuals who never had trauma just because your parents didn't scream or swing at you, that's not the case. Like, you do have trauma somewhere, you know? And, Absolutely. And it comes out when you love somebody. Like, that's where it comes out, when you fall in love with someone. Because rarely do we, you know, even with friendships, rarely do we get to that level of intimacy where we feel so comfort to treat someone like shit, you know? Because we have to feel really comfortable to like just like let our trauma out or feel really angry, which in order to be that angry, you have to really care about someone, you know, if someone on the street, you're not really, you're just like, whatever, you know, when you love somebody and it stuff builds up all of a sudden these like little bits of your sort of, I always relate it to, um, what's the, uh, that like newer Harry Potter movie that was after the, <laughs> the, the play, you know, like that kid Credence has like the, that like inner, like a uh, black thing. Like it's like, it's like that. No, it's not like a demon. It's like that. It's like his soul, right? It's like this, like sort of what, obscurus is what it's called. Um, and I always relate that is like that's that's a perfect description to our shadow, mm. where like it's a part of him. It's always going to be a part of him. But when he like gets you know to a when he's like so blind, he's like traumatized from his childhood. He like screams out of him, and it's this thing that like he can't control, you know. And it's like hurting other things or people around him that he cares about. And I'm like, that's such a an interesting like artistic way to allude to like everything inside of ourselves you know like it's not about like controlling or oppressing it it's about coexisting with your trauma Mm. and understanding like when it's being triggered because if you don't know when you're being triggered you're always going to blame the other person you know and be like well this person is at fault I wouldn't be feeling this way if it wasn't for them and like 
No, not necessarily because you're probably going to feel that way with somebody else. It's your responsibility to like you're saying like detach from that. And it's not to like shrug your shoulders and be okay with being treated like shit. It's not what it's about. It's about being aware of when you're sort of interacting with that to an unhealthy level, you know, as opposed to having self-respect. Absolutely. You know, I think there's so many, I mean, so many things about what you just said, but there's so many elements of our culture that are operating from like a deeply wounded masculine space. And this is men and women, right? And you sort of spoke to it in like this thing of like, I can't be wrong, right? Like I can't, I don't have the ego strength. And I would argue it is ego strength to be able to be wrong and that in no way diminish who I am, right? Like that I can own, like, of course I'm valuable, I'm human. And that does not make me any less of a person, but that Mm. takes a tremendous amount of ego strength to be able to stand in that truth, right? Um, But children have this like in incredible sense of injustice and like intuitively feeling what is happening, even if nobody's speaking to it. So when a parent like can't admit fault or, you know, everything's not okay between mom and dad, but we like, we only fight behind closed doors and we don't like, you know, model how to have like healthy conflict and conflict resolution. Children feel deeply sort of, um, you know, just like, there's like something off, like the word isn't coming to me right now, but it's like, it's a lack of intimacy. It's like deeply distancing from their caregivers. Like I just like something feels out of alignment for me, but I don't know what it is. And what I think you were speaking to so beautifully is what that leads to later in life is it's really difficult for me to tolerate the level of intimacy that I need to um, drop into, which is like my imperfections. Like I don't allow myself to be seen in that way because early on I got a lot of modeling that like in order to be worthy of love, I need to be perfect and things need to like be perfect or look perfect. And if it's not perfect, it must be this person. And so maybe we just need to not be together because things should be perfect if they're good. Right. Yes. Yes, exactly. I think that, and maybe you can speak on this because the term enmeshed family mm. was first like taught to me like two or three years ago in, in therapy. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like, you know, a, a lot of times sort of this individual we're speaking of like this archetype mm-hmm. is part of like some kind of enmeshed family where there's like not a lot of, you know, stuff spoke about unless it's like others problems there's not a lot of like hey how are you feeling about how I'm acting or you know this and that and I didn't know what enmeshment was because I I my family is not very enmeshed probably the opposite I think some of them are enmeshed but um, I feel like we're more of the opposite which is its own has its own set of problems but um, speaking about enmeshment and how that relates to sort of like you know, not being able to dive fully in intimacy. Can you talk about that? Because I don't think a lot of people understand what enmeshment is, what an enmeshed family looks like and you know how it's actually pretty common. Yeah. You know, it's interesting from, so basically like from a family systems perspective, what most of us experience as being true about the world is what we experience in our family of origin. Right. So if, you know, we have like a a family where like, basically like I talk to my mom every single day. I tell her everything that's happening with me. Like she feels like entitled (laughs) to know about my world and vice versa. Like, well, maybe not vice versa. Actually, a lot of times it's like my parent like really feels like they have the right to know about everything that's happening in my world. And I'm okay if my parents okay and they're okay if I'm okay. And that's a little bit like these codependent dynamics a lot of times that you're speaking about when you speak about enmeshment, right? right? But if this is all I've ever known, this feels really normal to me. This feels like this is just what family is. Like I, you know, I tell my mom everything and um, she has 
the right to like have a two cents in my my personal relationships. And if she doesn't like my boyfriend, then um, that probably means that we're not good or like it's going to be really hard for me to stay happy with my boyfriend because I'm going to have my mom's voice in my head telling me about mm-hmm. all the things that are wrong with him. Right. So that's a little bit of like some of what these enmeshed dynamics end up looking like. Right. Um, but then what ends up happening is like I will a lot of times like seek a relationship with someone who comes from a different paradigm, who comes from a different family structure, and they will start to butt heads, right? Because their family wasn't enmeshed or it just, it looked different in their family system. And what we have come together to do, I believe like psyche brings us together to sort of heal these things, but our ego wants to resist that. Our ego wants to make that other person wrong for their family system because it's not something I've experienced. So it must be wrong, right? This is the way we do things in my family. This is the way things have always been done. That must be the only way that things can be done. Hmm. Maybe, but what else could be true, right? Like what else could be true about that person's family that wasn't perfect, but was just different. And maybe our work is to come together and figure out like how we create something that feels authentic and true for us, like our new paradigm, our new structure and way of doing things, you know? I love that so much. I I always bring it back to like a lot of times, you know, one person in the relationship would be like, well, my parents always want us to come home for Christmas mm. or Thanksgiving or for whatever. Mm-hmm. you know. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, at some point, y'all got to kind of build your own rituals, right? Yes. And that's really healthy because you're building your own container. You can't just live in your parents' container because they want you to be there until you're 40 and 50, you know, and not, not seeing that like family connection is important. If you have that, you know, some people don't have that and that's, that's okay too. Right. Um, but I think that a lot of, um, folks and these are people in their thirties, forties, like they're like, Oh, I have to go home for Christmas, even if they're in a new relationship, you know? And so, you know, their partner ends up getting dragged along every time. And, and they forget that like, you also have to build that space with your partner because mm-hmm. you're not marrying your parents, you know, like your parents are going to be gone at some point too. And it's not to say like you, you like, you know, distance that relationship, but you know, we do have to prioritize relationships. And I think like if you're in an intimate partnership and you want to practice love, you have to practice love with that human being. You can't mm-hmm. just be like holding allegiance to your parents and sort of like, you know, falling into what they want you to do because you're not a child anymore. Yeah. You know? Like, I think <laughs> you spoke to this a little bit that a lot of times, like especially like on cultural levels, I feel like yeah. this is where I see this can be like really, really difficult to sort of like penetrate like this as like the structure of like how things have to be. And I think it becomes like, you know, it it sort of morphs into the realm of like codependency and yeah. self-abandonment. Like if it's like, this is not my truth, but I like continuously squash how this feels for me or the ways that I sort of have to self-abandon in order to like keep the peace in my family. That is not living in the space of my authentic self. That is like not the fully embodied life. Right. And so how do I figure out some sort of a compromise that feels true around who I am becoming with love and respect for my family, but also that some of the discomfort that comes up around. And I love you, that you use the example of like going home for Christmas. Cause I think certainly like in couples, this is a way that this does show up a lot. Right. Um, how do I sort of allow for like, this is what we've decided with so much love and respect for you guys and allow our family of origin, our parents maybe to sit in the discomfort that comes up around that and that they'll be okay. Yeah. You know, that that discomfort will not destroy them. Right. They'll be all right. You know? Yeah. 
No, I, I completely agree. And I almost think it like relates back to the the lesson we all learn as children is like, you don't always get what you want, mm. you know? And, <laughs> Not you know, everybody like, got that lesson. <laughs> right. It's like you get that, that lesson's got to spin back up, you know, the tree sometimes to like the, you know, it's like, like, you know, I think like parents become so attached a lot of times and it, it is cultural, but I, mm. you know, just, just looking back on my past relationship, like, like my, my relationship with my family is, is very distant. Like my, I have boundaries with my mother, with my grandmother, you know, my grandfather since passed away, but I, I still love them. I can still be around them, but you know, I know my limit. Like I know mm. my healthy limit with them. And, and, uh, specifically when I'm in a relationship, like I don't want to overexpose my partner to any sort of unhealthy patterns. You know, there's a limit because, you know, my mom and my grandmother have done X amount of work and that's kind of where they're going to stay. And I've accepted them for where they are and who they are. Mm. But I think a lot of, um, people live in the, uh, I would say container of preemptive regret where mm. why they go every Christmas is because they know their parents aren't going to be here at some point. And so if they don't keep going, this could be the last time, you know, but because they're living with preemptive regret, it's, it's impossible for them to live in present love with their partner because they're like, well, I got to do this for my mom or my dad because they want, want us to be there. We have to go because, you know, what if something happens? And I'm curious on what you think about that. Cause I think that that, that again, like if we look at the, the idea that things decisions are either made out of two things, fear or love. Yes. And a lot of times we're making decisions based on fear versus based on love because I feel like if you really understood that situation you'd be like I love my parents I love my partner mm. we've been there five times in a row we're gonna we're gonna probably chill this Christmas and, and start building our own thing you know it doesn't mean we won't come next Christmas but you know I'm just using that as an example whereas I think a lot of people don't even get to that point they're just like well this is what could happen you know they could get sick they're in their 60s 70s 80s now whatever and so we we have to go regardless of what it does to your relationship or the strain it puts on your life or maybe you're not even emotionally, you know, good to go because sometimes it's often it's really stressful for people to be around their family. You know? Yes. Um, and I'm curious on what you think about that and like the idea of preemptive regret and how it sort of controls us into, you know, um, I would say living unconsciously in a way. Mm. Well, first of all, I really love the way that you speak to things, Nico. I I have never heard of preemptive regret as a term, but that is so alive. And I think the way that... Um, Often people are living their lives, or I would say like sleepwalking through their lives a lot of times, um, not doing things that they want to do based on the things that they're afraid of. And I could not agree more that I think in every moment we are choosing between fear and love. And I think that if we're doing things based on what we're afraid of, um, that is not present energy, right? Like that is not like being in the present moment with the people that we love. And I don't actually think that that's loving. I think if I'm like there for Christmas and I've got like resentments about the fact that I'm there. I'm like in, you know, like all of the like agitation and like stress around like what this is doing to my partner back home or that my partner's here and doesn't want to be. Um, that is not actually showing up as my authentic self. And here's the thing that end ends up being, you know, when this person leaves, like, so say I'm going home for Christmas because I don't want to have preemptive regret about, you know, the fact that my mom's going to be upset about it. This creates distance between us and the people that we love. So what I'm creating a dynamic around is like, yeah, I spent a lot of time with my mom and my mom never actually really knew me. And I didn't really know her that well, you know, because we were just sort of like on the surface level going along to get along with one another. Whereas if like sometimes we do the thing that's going to make that person uncomfortable, make me uncomfortable, then we get to like dive below the surface a little bit with our conversations and we get to sort of like say the things we're not saying, dive into the fears 
of what we're afraid of. And I find that creates more intimacy between people, right? Like Mm -hmm. then when I have actual time with my mom, we're like in the rich space of actually connecting and actually really having a relationship versus like, this is what I have to do because I'm my mother's child, you know? Yes. I, I, it relates back to the archetype you brought up about like the mother having to know everything, right? Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of those relationships, the mother has to know everything, but the, I wouldn't say child, but like, yeah, the child doesn't know a lot about the mother. You know, mm. I feel like it, that's kind of usually what the what it looks like. It's where the mother has to be kind of involved in everything. If they don't like the partner or the boyfriend, well, there's something wrong already with the boyfriend or the partner, even if they disagree. Um, but the 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 younger or the the child usually, and I'm speaking of like an adult child, like mm-hmm. doesn't know a lot about the mother, or her inter her like her struggles, or even like the relationship with if the mother and the father, or the or the you know whatever kind of relationship it is, if they're if they're still together, struggles between that, and that's a lot of times relates back to thinking that you come from a perfect a perfect like childhood because your parents never talked about their shit, right? Yes. They ne- or you or, or maybe you never saw it because they, they always closed the door or they never yelled. Or they never threw things. So it wasn't as evident that they were struggling or that they were angry at each other. There was like little bits of, you know, passiveness in there and that, you know, blossoms into your own life. So it's interesting when we look at like just our relationships with people. It's like I always go on this like I'm always undecided. Is it complex or is it just really simple? Because you can kind of say either one. It's like, you know, if we really look at it, it's not that crazy complex. But then when I look at like all humans together trying to relate to each other, it does feel quite complex. You know, it's like it's a conundrum, but but it's hilarious. It feels like it's complex and it's simple, right? Like it's complex in that like we are so nuanced in the things that have hurt us and the way that we defend against feeling into that hurt. And yet... um, It's simple in that if we just tell the truth about like what I want, then we're able to get to those spaces. Like we're able to get to those layers. You know, you were um, you were just speaking about like like mothers. And like, I think it's really interesting in the context of mothers and daughters. And I'm a little bit um, obsessed with like these masculine and feminine dynamics and talk a lot about like the mother wound, which is basically not so much like I've been wounded by my mother, but it's like what living in a patriarchal culture does to women. And what I find is that so many of our mothers are just so deeply disconnected from capital S self that even if we were attempting to get to know our mothers as women, they are so disconnected from who they are that like they They have no idea. Right. And so it's like, yeah, like, I am so invested in this is what the picture looks like. We're here every Christmas and we take the picture and, you know, and, and a lot of times what that's doing is me defending against like, but if there's no kid here and I'm with myself, what am I left with? If my role is no longer to be this child's mother, this adult child's mother, PS, right. Um, Then I'm left with the reality of, who am I? And Where's that's my worth. Thank you. Like deeply yeah. discomfortable, discomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> that's deeply uncomfortable <laughs> for so many of us to, to sit in, you know, I completely agree, man. And I think of myself, like if I am to be a parent one day, like I hope that I can have enough consciousness to be like, I didn't have this child to serve me. Mm. You know, I had it so it can have its own life. That's right. You know, and I'm most certainly going to make mistakes with the, with the kid. And I think that a lot of parents, like, they're like, well, I give, now it's time to give back. You know, it's like, now you got to show up every, uh, every Christmas or whatever, you know. And that might not even be explicitly stated. It's just, like, implied, you know. Yeah. Like, you have a duty, you know, to this family. And I'm like, man, I don't know. I think that, you know, you maybe have a duty to be a good person. But sometimes that's being a good person for your partner and yourself. And 
you know, sometimes you have to disappoint others too. Um, but if you always choose that family dynamic and always are sort of disappointing your partner, you're not, you know, you're not going to be in a relationship that's going to, um, really work out. I don't think, unless you have a partner that's like very subservient and they're just like, all right, you know, whatever, go, go with the flow. And then, then is that their truth, right? Like, is that really what's true for them? You know, Carl Jung said that there is no greater burden placed upon children than the unlived, unlived lives of their parents. And I think that, you know, so often we feel like, you know, I'm giving everything to my child. Like I am not interested in like give, sacrificing my life for my child. I think that is such an unfair burden for me to put on him. He didn't ask right. for that. You know, right. um, I need to keep living so that I show him like you have permission to live your life. That's what you came here to do. It's not your job to be my reason for being, you know? Right. Most definitely. Mm. So I'm curious on what you think about, you know, how do we, I think a lot of people are are experiencing, well, this isn't just related to the current time, but loneliness in society, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that it it directly relates to our family of origin. It relates to how we navigate relationships, how we feel by ourselves, you know, in isolation. Like, I think there's, again, there's like two parties here. There's, There's one party that experiences loneliness to a very deep level and, you know, like, feels like they are a very lonely person even in a relationship depending on the relationship and then there's the other person that is doing so many things never thinks about loneliness Mm. you know they can they're never lonely they always have shit going on and i'm i'm curious i'm like are those normal like are those things that just are going to exist naturally i know loneliness is perpetually human but like you know in my mind the reason i'm asking this question is like in my experience, like I can't really find somebody, um, you know, that I'm sort of really looking for, for really align with unless I'm honest about like the loneliness within myself because it's not their responsibility. Hmm. Like I'm not looking for somebody anymore to sort of soothe my loneliness, nor am I running away from it and showing up to relationships saying that I don't have loneliness, you know? And so I guess how do we as adults like get to a point where we're truthful about, you know, our wants and needs and feeling lonely, but not showing up into relationship like with this cupcake being like, okay, now it's your, now it's your time to deal with this shit. Cause I don't want to feel lonely anymore. So you got to make me feel not, not lonely. You know, you always have to be here showing up for me. Mm. Yeah. I love that you said feeling lonely because I think what we as a society have done is sort of conflate solitude and loneliness. And I don't Mm. think they're the same. I think that, you know, a lot of times we are just so resistant to the experience of solitude and um, really feeling into and embracing and noticing and meeting with curiosity what it feels like to be alone. And that is different than being lonely. And lonely Mm -hmm. is like a feeling like all of the other feelings that comes and goes. I don't think we are like, quote, lonely people. I think like Mm -hmm. sometimes I am sad. Sometimes I am joyful. Sometimes I am all of the like plethora of feelings that we as humans are supposed to be um, appropriately. And sometimes I am lonely, you know? Um, And I think that like when we feel loneliness, so often what I find with clients is like we will attach to that. It's like, I'm lonely now. This is like who I am. It's like, well, it's like 
this is what's in me right now. Tomorrow, I might not feel lonely. Tomorrow, I might go and be in community and I might, um, you know, have a connection that feels amazing. But like the resistance to the loneliness that I feel in this moment, I think we want to like define ourselves by it. And I think that like loneliness is a feeling like all of the others that comes and goes. Our solitude is something that we can be in relationship with. Um, And I think a lot of times we have an unhealthy relationship with solitude, but that has been a really big teacher for me in this like singlehood journey that I have embarked upon is that like a lot of times, like I'm actually not lonely. I'm just alone. And so much of my life I hadn't spent alone that I didn't really know how to do it until I made the decision to like embrace it in a different way. Yeah. And I I feel like it's really hard to be truly alone with, with these things, with our phones, you know, because Mm. I can literally be completely alone for days. But mm. if I'm on my phone eight hours a day, am I really alone? Because there's a difference between like sitting alone, like not doing anything and really yeah. experiencing what you're feeling and the state of being you're in versus like you're alone, but you've been swiping on, you know, Instagram or Tinder or whatever for eight hours, you know, and, and you're really not experiencing, you know, or, or learning any of the lessons it is about being alone. So it's mm. really, you know, like you're never, I feel like a lot of people resort to that, especially in our world of technology and the internet. It's like, I'll just watch Netflix for the day or, you know, go on a run. These things that are considered healthy for sure. But a lot of times we always have to be doing something now, mm. you know, like even meditation is doing something, you know, and it's just like, can you, can you actually just sit down and pay attention? Yeah, you know? Absolutely. And it's hard, like it's hard, especially when people are like, well, they need a drug or they need to be stimulated or they need to be caffeinated, whatever, you know? And it's like, man, guys, we need to, I think we need to hone the shit in a little bit and realize that like these tools, these tools should be sort of serving us and we shouldn't be servants to them. That's right. I mean, I, I just so strongly agree. And I think what I recommend to clients so often when I'm having this conversation is leave your phone and go out in nature for a while Mm. and notice how you just feel healed by the natural intelligence and rhythm of like what we innately um, know how to do to heal ourselves, which is just be in the world, you know? Um, And, and we so are like, resistant to doing that but it's amazing how quickly we feel healed by the world around us when we step outside of to your point like the technology and the distractions and the inability to like just feel a feeling and um i'm amazed i like never stop being amazed how much like going on a hike like will just like soften every part of my internal world into like oh and i'm actually okay you know yeah I completely agree. I, I think about like the times maybe before smartphones is now you know, specifically in a mountain town like where I live when someone's biking or running or training or whatever. Everyone always has their phone because when mm. they get to the summit, they want to take a photo. And I'm not against capturing memories, but I do think there's something to be said for leaving your phone at home yeah. and going with your friends or by yourself and just experiencing what it was like before a smartphone was in everyone's pocket, mm. you know? And if it really comes down to the fact where like you need an emergency way to contact people, get a flip phone for like 10 bucks a month or something. You know, like I'm serious. I think for people's mental health, like yeah. it's a huge benefit. Like you, you still need to be able to call emergency, you know, if something happens. But like the whole idea of still having this sort of anxious attachment to the Internet, you know, where like we can't go to the top of a summit because if we don't take a photo and post on Instagram, it never happens. So mm-hmm. therefore it's worthless. It is is taking away from the experience of living your life, you know. Like you're just living it for 
to post photos and swears versus like really having the memories. Like remember when the memory was the only way we could we could remember stuff? Mm. Like like now it's like, well, I'll just scroll, you know, six years down on my Facebook. And it's like, dude, remember yeah. when you you actually used your brain to hold all of that data? Um, and you were able to sort of go back and like remember the times when you like, you know, held this person or saw this person for the last time or something like that, you know? And I'm not against photos. Like I'm a photographer and a videographer for my trade and that's how I make money. But I think that mm-hmm. like there's something to be said for stepping away from that need to like capture things uh, with technology versus capturing it with our with our somatic self with like experience you know because I, I i i found that so many times when i was like running full time as i would like mm. get into a mode where like oh i need to get on top of this mountain to take a photo so i can post on instagram so everyone sees like that i did this today versus like why am i doing this today mm. like am i out here because i really love it like am i out here like feeding my soul you know and um yeah i think it's a it's an interesting thing i it brought up a a recent memory. So I went to my first wedding recently. Um, my friends and Mark and Errol got married uh, a couple weekends ago. So they got married actually a month ago and then they had the reception the weekend after. And so I was at the reception and I had never been, I hadn't been to a, I hadn't been to a wedding a long time, first of all, but I had also never thought I'd be to a, be attending a wedding without my ex-partner. Meaning that like I had built this thing. John Kim talks about this a lot, like this sort of narrative in my head mm-hmm. where, you know, I've, there's no way I would have like in my current state be at this wedding without my partner or my ex-partner, you know? And I remember, I'm sitting there in this table and everyone has a partner there, you know, like, like uh, I've never been to a wedding uh, in a long time, but most certainly I haven't been to a wedding alone, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in that discomfort of being like, man, I, I am actually alone here, you know? And not, not that it's a bad thing, but it made me feel quite sad because I was like, man, I don't have this person Mm-hmm. who's like my person like sit there and like laugh with or dance with you know and I think it's important like for me to like acknowledge that because as I was driving home after the wedding like I, I was one super happy for my friends because of their love and their health and their relationship but also felt this this great like sort of gap of being like oh man like I still miss this human being you know I still miss this these experiences and that's okay like it doesn't mean like I necessarily want that relationship right now you know because there are unhealthy things in it um, but it, it's okay to sort of like be lonely and have those sad days knowing that like it doesn't define you for the week or for the month having to be sad and lonely and it might last longer than others but I I like how you brought that up because I feel like a lot of times I would consider myself a lonely person because I'm experiencing loneliness hmm. because it's so isolating in this in the sense where like oh I, no one else could be experiencing this they just get over it you know hmm. and then the more people I talk to especially in the mental health space like no everyone experiences this, whether they talk about it or not you know, and so it was just, it was an interesting experience for me because I, you know, I'm like more than a, a year removed now from that relationship and I healed a ton, but I hadn't been in that situation seeing all this other love around me, you know, seeing like these, mm. these couples. And of course, like, I don't know a lot of these people, so who knows what the relationships are like behind closed doors. That's but, real. <laughs> right. That's real. But like that, that being said, I still was sitting there being like, oh man, I wish like this person was here, you know, like, mm-hmm. like I think it's natural to want you know, that sort of connection or attachment. But um, I don't know where I was going with the story. I just felt like sharing it because I feel like some people can relate to that because I called a couple of friends after and I was like talking to them about it. And and they're like, oh yeah, I never go to weddings solo. And I'm like, interesting that like we, we avoid that because we know it's going to be quite like pain, I think painful to an extent for some people, you know, if they're not in a very like stable, you know, place. Cause I, I thought I was good. And then I went to that wedding. I was like, fuck man, I feel sad. Uh, you know, <laughs> which is, which is really intriguing to me. Um, cause it's sort of like being around my friend's love brought that out in a mm. way where I was like, wow, 
I'm still like processing this, you know, and it's been, it's been a bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's beautiful. And thank you for sharing that, you know, cause I think that that, that again reminds me of the, the tension of the opposites, you know, that yes. like I can do a lot of healing and like a lot of aspects of my life feel different than they did a year ago. And I can still like, sort of like feel like this moment of like jarring sadness. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't actually define like where my life is right now. It's that right. I felt sad in that moment and I get to feel yeah. sad, you know, like I don't have to like pretend that, that, that means something about like where I am or like what I want or like, I just get to feel the feelings. Like I think the yes. more that we can invite ourselves to feel the truth of what we feel it's just like, <laughs> I, I mean, we feel it anyway, so we might as well just like not be beating ourselves up for the fact that this is how I feel, you know? I love it, Danae. Well, mm. if you could uh, get, leave people with, you know, some some pieces of wisdom from your practice, <laughs> and, you know, what, what, what are the, you know, just and it doesn't have to be, you know, three or four things, but what are some things you'd like people to sit with, you know, as we kind of close this out? Hmm. You know, I think you you touched on it a little bit that we've been in this really unique moment in history, I feel like, where um, the universe asked us to like really slow down and look inward in a way that I don't think collectively we've been asked to do certainly in like our lifetime. Um, And I think, you know, what I'm seeing is that like even more than during the pandemic, people are really struggling emotionally with this like reemergence, like a lot of like, you know, reentry anxiety and like, like actually feeling depression and sadness that like hadn't been there. And I think some of this is like um, our invitation to really attempt to make meaning and understand like, you know, for so long we were like in survival with all of this. And now it's a little bit like do we want to go back to life as life was like a little of what you were speaking to? Like, do we want to go back to like being zombies looking at our phones all day and like Mm. productivity for the sake of productivity all day, every day? Or do we want to sort of say, perhaps this was an invitation for us to like really look inward and attempt to, I don't know, just like be critical of the way that we were living a little bit and maybe we need each other. And that was what we were supposed to really, um, take away from all this. And I think the gift to me about this last year is that people have been a little bit more willing to talk about mental health and the truth of how they're feeling emotionally. And I hope that we keep that going. You know, I hope that we continue to meet each other in that way, because I don't know what's more important than that. I 100% agree with you on all those points. So where can people find you? And where can they tune into your podcast? I have listened to a handful of those episodes, and they're awesome. Like give the people the the plug where can yeah. they where can they reach you at thanks nico yeah um so i'm Logan on instagram and um Logan selkin on my website and stuff and yes i host a podcast with my friend vanessa which hopefully nico will be on soon um called cheaper than therapy where we we talk a lot about the things that we're talking about you know like destigmatizing mental health and um just exploring some of the conversations that we don't always have um in our day-to-day lives that type of thing Awesome. And if people want to attend the Tat Lab courses with you, will they do they just go is like Tat Lab have a website? If yeah, you can just you can do drop in classes anytime, which is what's so cool. You can sort of like look at what's happening. Um, we do like codependency classes and trauma classes, attachment style classes and singlehood classes, all the things. Um, so you can just go to there's an app now. You can actually just search uh, Tat Lab in the app store and um, it'll come up through that. 
But thanks so much for having me on, Nico. This was really fun. Thank you so much for coming on, Danae. It's been a wonderful conversation, and I'm sure I'm going to want to have you on again because, you know, one hour is just not enough to get into someone's mind, but uh, it was wonderful to listen to you speak. Thank you. Well, we'll have to have you on so we can pick your brain a little bit, too. Let's do it. Totally. All right. Thanks, Nico.